Well, I'm so glad you're joining us online today with uh, Spring Creek starting a brand new series that we're calling The Impossible. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. This is going to be our series leading up to Easter. We're going to talk a lot about resurrection miracles and, of course, all in anticipation of what Easter is all about. I want to remind you, too, while you're watching at home, and of course, we're making these decisions week by week in terms of how long we're going to be an online church. But for today, please, as you're watching this, whether you're watching it on YouTube or whether you're watching it on Facebook, please be sure to let us know that you're there. Just put a comment, hey, our family's watching today from wherever you're at, just so that everybody does feel that connection because we are the body of Christ together. And this is just a wonderful time to celebrate that connectivity, especially if maybe we're feeling a little alone, a little isolated right now. Before we get started, I want to do this message today on the raising of the widow's son. But before we get into that, let's pray together. Father, I just want to lift up the entire congregation, our city and our nation to you right now, because we're in a really challenging time. A lot of us have a lot of uncertainty, maybe even some fear that's going on. I pray, Lord, that in this moment that we've carved out to be with you, that literally, God, all the distractions will just go to the wayside, that we would say, Lord, this is time. This is our collective spiritual discipline to bring ourselves into your presence and to know, God, that though we may not be gathered in the same room, we are all gathered. And your promise is when we gather together in your name, your presence is there among us in a powerful way. So manifest your presence in every home, in every location where someone is accessing this service. I pray, God, that they would just sense that you're with them, that you love them. They would sense your arms wrapping around them and that we would meet with you today around your truth. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it used to be that funerals were really solemn but rather crude affairs. The dead were placed in a wooden box. They were lowered by ropes into a six-foot hole. But nowadays, it's a far different experience, a much more elegant arrangement. When you die, they take you to a beautiful building that employs these experts at creating just this gorgeous, tasteful presentation of your body. In fact, they have makeup artists that can make you look better in death than you did in life. At least I know that's what I'm counting on. The casket's no longer a wooden box. It's now a polished bronze bed with cushions. And as you lay there in this beautiful bed, people from miles around come just to see you. They stand in line. They say nice things about you. Everybody talks about how wonderful you are. The preacher, when he gets up, he tells your life story, talks about your accomplishments and how much everybody loved you. When the ceremony is over, you're put into a limousine and they take you through the streets of your town. Police officers stop traffic for you and you get to run red lights and nobody ever will give you a ticket. Cars on the other side of the road, they pull over just because you're coming. Eventually, they pull into the cemetery, and instead of crude ropes, nowadays, they have these gorgeous, polished silver winches that lower you deep into that six-foot hole. It's all elegant. It's all beautiful. It's really quite impressive. But you know what? When it's all said and done, dead is still dead. And I, and I think that's probably the harshest reality that all of us deal with, that dead is still dead. You are going to die. You are going to die. I am going to die. All your family, your friends, your neighbors, everybody you know will eventually die. 
unless Jesus comes back first, sooner or later, none of us are getting out of this place alive. Sometimes death comes early, sometimes it comes late, but it always eventually comes for us all. Everybody dies. Can you remember the first funeral you ever went to? I do. I mean, it's still vivid in my mind. It was for my papa Stewart. I, I loved, and I mean, I absolutely love my grandfather. Uh, every single memory I have of him is just wonderful. I, I, I loved him, and I know he loved me, and I know what a priority I was in his life. I can still remember going to his funeral. I was at a funeral home in Ironton, Ohio, and I, I saw his dead body, and I didn't have any category for that. It was the most disorienting experience I'd ever seen before. I'd never really thought about death before that time, and I certainly never thought my grandfather was going to die. It was really too much for me, and I, and I can still remember. I ran out of the funeral. I ran out of the funeral home. Our family car, our station wagon, was parked out front of the funeral home alongside the curb, and I jumped into the back seat of the car, and I laid across that seat, and I just cried my eyes out. And no one that I can remember came to comfort me. Nobody came to check on me. Nobody ever explained to me what was happening. At 10, I was floundering with grief all on my own. My papa was gone, and I was just devastated. Now, as a result of that deeply wounding experience in my life, when I had my very first church here in Garland, Texas, down on Kingsley Road, 34 years ago, my first pastorate, I had a very dear friend in the church that had a father who died. Now, I was still uncomfortable with death. The one experience I had had around death was not a pleasant one at all. And when her father died, he lived in Missouri, so I wasn't asked to do the funeral. But because I was so uncomfortable with death, not knowing what to say, I didn't say anything to Cynthia. Now, you can imagine how much that must have hurt her, because it did. It profoundly wounded her. And later on, I had to go to her, and I had to seek her forgiveness. I had to say, Cynthia, I'm so sorry. I, and, and I explained that she was so understanding. She was so forgiving of me. But it was because of that terrible experience in my very first church around death that made me passionate to get this right. First, I knew I needed to get healing for myself, so I leaned into my grief. And I found the healing I needed for my grief. And, and because of that, you see, we can't give to other people what we ourselves have never received. So I desperately needed this touch from God. And as I began to understand grief in my own life, I began to understand that grief is a process. And it looks very different for different people, that we have to literally learn how to help people who are hurting, sometimes by just being a warm presence. Today, we're going to meet a woman who's experiencing just that. I hope that in some ways you're going to be able to connect to her story. This is a horribly awful day. This is the absolute worst day of her life. And you should know that there's going to be days like this in your life too, when you're completely devastated and you're totally wrecked. But here's the good news. Jesus finds wrecked people. Now, Luke tells us this story. This is in chapter 7 of his book, beginning in verses 11 to 13. Let me read it to you. So afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. 
Now, first, just a little bit of background. Jesus had been in Capernaum, which is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The very next day, he and his disciples traveled some 20 miles uh, to the south to the city of Nain. Now, Nain itself is on the northwest slope of Mount Tabor. It's close to another tiny town called Shunem. Now, keep that in mind because it's an important detail for later in the message. Nain doesn't appear any other place in the Bible. It's an unimportant place. It's 20 miles to Capernaum. It's six miles to Nazareth. Now, just so you know, Nazareth is nowhere and Capernaum is nowhere. So Nain is literally in the middle of nowhere. The first recorded account of this city, apart from scripture, happens in the year 380 AD. And it was a woman, her name is Etheria, and she traveled to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage and wrote about her experience. This is what she said. In the village of Nain is the house of the widow whose son was brought back to life, which is now a church, and the burial place where they were going to lay him is still there to this day. So where I want to begin today is give you a little bit of cultural context. Let's look at first century funeral rites. The Jewish custom was to bury their dead on the day that they died. Cemeteries were always situated on the outskirts of town, and the, the time of the burial was almost always at sunset. The coffin would have been raised on the shoulder with the face of the dead person exposed. Now, when you read this story, and maybe in your translation it says the word coffin or casket, please don't think of a wooden box because people weren't buried in wooden boxes in those days. This would have been an open coffin, most likely a long wicker style basket, but without a lid or any covering whatsoever. Now, every funeral processional would have been led or accompanied by a group of professional mourners. These people were actually paid to mourn and to grieve alongside the family. And here's the deal, even of the poorest of the poor in all of Israel were required to have them. There's this really ancient Jewish book that's called the Ketaboth. And in chapter four, verse four of that book, it says, even the poorest in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman. So these folks would have been paid to be a part of the funeral. They were the funeral experts, if you will. This is the precursor to Restland Incorporated. Now, what they would do is they would tear their clothes. They would throw ash up in the air and on their face. They would play sad songs on flutes and on tambourines or cymbals. This would be loud. It would be really loud. And they would give a lot of vocal expression to their grief. Now, the idea behind this, because it really sounds strange to us in the Western world, the idea behind that is that the music and the professional grievers would be so loud that those who were actually grieving would not be embarrassed to give full vent to their feelings. That's the rationale behind having paid mourners. Now, in our culture, if you're driving along and you notice this long line of cars, everybody has lights are on and it's led by a funeral coach, you know that out of courtesy, out of respect, you pull to the side of the road. In the Jewish world, if you were to encounter a funeral, people leaving town to go take a loved one to the grave, your obligation was actually to join in the funeral. So with that in mind, let's look more closely at the story itself. I call this next point, tears that touch the heart of Jesus. Now in verse 13, the Bible says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. 
The Message Bible renders the same verse, when Jesus saw her, his heart broke. So there's no question. I mean, Jesus is deeply touched by this woman's grief. The Greek word for compassion is this word splagnizomai. It's a really interesting word because it's only used to describe two people in the Bible. It's used to describe Jesus and the Good Samaritan. Each time it's used, though, the emphasis is not on the feeling of compassion, but the action of compassion. Think of it like this. Compassion is not detached concern. Instead, it always involves actions. In other words, compassion is something you do, not just something you feel. Now, it's interesting that both the Hebrew and the Arabic words for compassion is the same. It's the word ramen, like we think ramen noodles, except spelled with an H. And that word, etymologically, is tied to a Hebrew word called reken. And reken is actually the word for womb. You see, what the Bible is telling us about compassion is it is tied to maternal love, the kind of love that a mother feels for that baby that's growing in her womb, the baby that she eventually delivers. That connection, that intimacy is the word for compassion in the Bible. Someone said, compassion is your pain in my heart. So Jesus feels, he knows, he understands her pain. More importantly, he's moved to do something about it. And she can see that. She can hear it in his words. She can see it in his expression. She can see it in his eyes. So what do we know about her? Well, for one thing, she's already been to one funeral, hasn't she? Because she's a widow. So at some point, her husband died. Maybe a long time ago, maybe recently. Now what's happening? Well, she's bearing her son, and not just her son, her only son. You know, I was reading a psychological journal Uh, 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 an article about the effects of the death of a child on a parent. I just want you to hear these simple facts. This is a summary. Each year, over 50,000 U.S. children die. The death of a child is one of the most painful events that an adult can experience. Furthermore, because the death of a child defies the expected order of life events, many parents experience the event as a challenge to basic existential assumptions. Now, the word that's used here in the Bible to describe her son is a word that's used to describe a child or an adult between the age of 25 and 35. So her son is not a child. He's actually a grown man. Still, it doesn't matter, boy or man, children aren't supposed to precede their parents in death. But this also means that this woman is an older woman, right? She's not a young mom. So get this, there's so much about this story that you and I will miss if we don't understand a little bit more about the cultural context. In that day, a son would be required, would be expected to care for their aging parents, especially his mother. So he would love her, he would provide for her. He would care for her in her advancing age. This son was likely already doing that because we're already told dad had died sometime before. Kids were the healthcare plan. They were the social security safety net. They were the retirement plan, all rolled up into one. In fact, in the developing world today, that's still true. Children are the only lifeline for aging parents. So consider now both breadwinners in her life, both her husband and her son are now gone. She's left to fend for herself on her own. What typically would happen to a woman in this situation is she would go back to her family of origin. But because she's advanced in years, her parents may have already passed. And if they haven't passed, they're probably not in a condition to really care for her. 
So what we discover is the second alternative is to go to her husband's family. Now, in that case, a brother of her husband might take her as an additional wife, or she might become the servant of her husband's family. On top of that, get this, and this is the grave injustice, she can't even inherit her husband or her son's land, cattle, or wealth. Wives and daughters could not inherit wealth or property. Now, this makes this story truly catastrophic. What I'm telling you is this woman is wrecked emotionally, socially, economically, and practically every way you can imagine her life has been completely and utterly devastated. Now, just losing a child would be devastating enough, don't you think? I mean, I've done hundreds of funerals in my ministry, and I've done a good number for children. I can still remember, I've done two different funerals for kids that died of um, meningitis. I I had a child that I I buried out in Forney that fell asleep on his father's chest while he was napping in a recliner, and the child fell to his side and suffocated. I I did a funeral one time at Parkland Hospital in their chaplaincy area. Because a mother and baby were in a car and they were in an accident, the baby was killed. The mother was so laid up, they had to wheel her in on a gurney to attend her own child's funeral. There's nothing more difficult than the death of a child, even an adult child. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Parents aren't supposed to outlive their children. So maybe now you're beginning to understand a little bit more what this woman is actually going through. She's going through a level of grief that honestly few people in this life will ever experience. And Jesus came to her. I love that about this story. We don't see her asking for Jesus to come. Jesus goes out of his way to go see her. Jesus, like I said, has just traveled 20 miles from Capernaum, and he's making this beeline to this woman. Imagine Jesus is followed by this crowd. They're all following him on this 20-mile trek. They want Jesus to stop because they want to ask him questions, they want to be able to, for him to feed them. They want him to touch their diseases. They want him to speak his truth. And Jesus is not going to be swayed. He's moving with intentionality toward the city of Nain because he's got to meet this woman. Because Jesus seeks and finds wrecked people. What had this woman done to deserve this act of compassion and love? Absolutely nothing. She had nothing. She'd done nothing. She believed nothing. In fact, when you read this story, she never even says anything. There's not a single recorded word from this widow woman. So Jesus finds her, and she's sobbing, and her face is covered in ash, and she hasn't eaten since the day her son died. She's a mess. But Jesus steps into that mess, and he's got something to do, and that leads to the next point. Your cry for help has been answered. Notice in Luke 7, 13, the second part of that verse, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Now it's interesting in the Greek, the word for cry is klio. And it's not just the word that describes the shedding of a tear, it's keening. You know what keening is? Keening is wailing. Keening is uncontrollable sobbing. It's this loud cry that just kind of pierces the day. She's without hope. She's without any kind of support. She can't imagine what her life is going to become. This is what happens when grief piles up on top of grief. No sympathy or kindness can put a dent in this ache. I'm sure her friends have tried to console her. They've hugged her. They brought casseroles. But still, she's wailing. 
So Jesus says, don't cry. And at first it seems a little out of place, maybe even wrong. It's interesting, Ken Geyer made this comment. He said, these words are not out of a textbook on pastoral care. And, and I would second that. I mean, if there's anything I've ever been taught when it comes to grief, the one thing you never say to somebody is don't cry. But still we do it, don't we? I mean, sometimes we do it for all the wrong reasons. Sometimes we say it because that person's crying is making us really uncomfortable. In fact, I've even heard people say, don't cry or you're going to make me cry. In other words, stop what you're doing or you're going to make me feel bad too. But there's another reason, another motivation for saying don't cry. Remember when your kids were really little and they were somewhere else in the house. They may be in the bedroom or the living room. You were in the kitchen and you hear them cry out and you dropped everything you were doing and you ran to them as quickly as you could. And when you got there, the first words out of your mouth were don't cry. Now, what you meant by that is I'm here. You're going to be okay. Your cry has been answered. Everything's going to be all right. Mom is here now. Dad is here now. I believe that's what Jesus is saying. I'm here now. Everything's going to be all right. I'm the answer to the prayer of your heart. The president of McCormick Seminary is a woman named Cynthia Campbell. And she made an interesting comment about this passage. She said, resurrection is a sign that God not only prefers life, but has the power to make good on the promise that life will prove stronger than death. I love that. God prefers life over death. So in your mind, I just want you to picture what's going on here. There are two processionals, if you will. Two crowds meet at the gate of name. There's a parade of life, which is Jesus, his disciples, and all the people who are following him. And there's a parade of death, which is the dead man, his wailing mother, and all the other mourners who've joined us on the way to the graveyard. What's going to happen at the intersection of life and death? You know, there's this book that's kind of a commentary on the law by the Jewish people, it's called the Talmud. And in the Talmud, the rabbis tried to imagine every possible scenario that a person could face in life and how God's word would intersect with that reality. And one of the things they talk about in that book is what were to happen when a funeral processional meets a wedding processional. And what they said, how they reasoned through this, is that the wedding processional always has the right of way. You know why? This is the reason they gave. Life always has the right of way over death. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, because at this intersection between Jesus and this processional, between Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and this funeral of death, it's not just that life has the right of way, but life is about to stop death in its track. And that leads us to this. Jesus touches dead people and brings life. Listen to Luke continue to tell the story. Then he went up and touched the beer, that's the casket, the, the wicker basket the man was being carried in, that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, the first thing we notice in this story is Jesus just walks right up to the funeral processional, lays his hand on the casket, and he stops them dead in their tracks. Of course, religious folks would tell him, this is not something you're supposed to do because you're not supposed to touch dead people, and you're not supposed to touch anything dead people have touched. Because if you touch a dead person or you touch something that they have touched, that renders you unclean. Listen to the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, describe this uncleanness. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. 
He must purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defies, defiles, that is, the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel. So in ancient Israel, just to serve as a pallbearer meant to render yourself unclean for seven days. Now, it wasn't a sin. Don't put this in the category of sinfulness. But because you had contact with a dead body or something a dead body touched or you entered the home where someone had died, you were rendered unclean. But notice, Jesus doesn't pay any attention to this law of cleanness. He goes right up to the casket. He grabs hold of it. It's a strong word. He stops it. This is the same Jesus who touches lepers and menstruating women about whom these same laws apply. What Jesus is demonstrating to us is that uncleanness is not contagious. Instead, Jesus himself is an example of a good contagion. Instead of being infected by death, Jesus infects people with his purity. He infects people with his life. Jesus is not infected by uncleanness. They're infected by him. So Jesus literally reaches into death, touches the young man, and gives him the command, arise. Who is this that issues orders to the dead? Who is this that gives commandments to death? And with that, the Bible says the dead man sat up and began to speak. I love, I mean, I absolutely love what Bill Johnson of Bethel Church said about this. Jesus ruined every funeral he ever attended. And that's the truth. Every time Jesus came near to someone who died, they refused to stay dead. Unlike me, Jesus never had to give a funeral message. So the man sits up. He starts talking. He gets out of the coffin. Jesus escorts him over to his mom. Imagine now the look on that mom's face. Imagine the tears streaming down her cheek. Think about how long she grabbed hold of and wouldn't let go of her son. She got her son back, alive and well, and with him, her life, her future, her home, and her hope. That's what our Jesus does. He touches dead people and he brings life. And by the way, if you're a Christian, this is exactly what's already happened to you. Paul describes this in the book of Ephesians. He writes, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The Bible teaches that because we're sinners, though we're physically alive, we're spiritually dead. Spiritually, we're in the same condition as this man. We're dead. We don't seek God. We don't find God. He finds us. This man's not crying out for help, is he? The man's not seeking Jesus. The man hadn't gone to Capernaum to find Jesus to heal him. This man is dead. So he does nothing. He says nothing. He seeks nothing. And still Jesus finds him. This miracle also demonstrates that it's not required for a person to have faith to be healed. Dead people don't have faith. And no comment is ever made about his mother's faith. In fact, her wailing, her crying tells you that she's without hope. But that's how salvation works. You and I, we're dead in our sins, absolutely dead. And Jesus, he finds us. He reaches out to us. He touches us. Jesus gives us life. We're in that contagion, that good contagion of his purity, of his life. Anyone who's a Christian has already experienced this. 
I experienced at the age of 13. I moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus' life infected my death. Jesus' purity became my purity. His holiness became my holiness. That's what Jesus is. He's a contagion for good. David Gooding wrote a book called According to Luke, and in it, he made this observation. Physical healing is always a shadow of the reality of the spiritual healing our world needs through Christ Jesus. So a big part of the reason why this miracle is here is to teach us that truth, that apart from God, we're dead. Yet God still seeks us in our deadness, in our condition. He touches us and makes us alive in him. There's always more to miracles than what meets the eye. And of course, that leads to the most important point of all, that Jesus is the greater risen son. I want to call your attention to the reaction of the people to this amazing miracle. The Bible says they were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, why do the people say that Jesus is a great prophet? I mean, it's true, of course, but their understanding is incomplete. And part of the reason they understand this in this way is because of where they live. And that's what this next point is about. God is doing it again. I don't know if you remember, at the very first part of this message, I mentioned a tiny town, literally just a mile, two miles from the town of Nain. Do you remember the name of that town? Shunem. Now, why is Shunem important? Shunem is important because about 900 years prior to this miracle, Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. Now, everyone around Shunem knew this miracle, about this miracle, of course, including the people in Nain. This is a holy place. It's a famous place. Everyone knew the location of one of the greatest miracles and one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, people would probably make pilgrimages just to see the home of the Shunammite woman where the miracle happened. Now Jesus has come on the scene. He's just a mile or two north of this very famous city of Shunem. But Jesus doesn't have to do what Elisha did. Elisha had to to pray, had to seek God. He had to uh, prostrate himself out over the body. He had to do this elaborate ritual for God to raise the dead. All Jesus had to do was say the word, arise. And the man arose from the dead. So if in the Old Testament, we know Elisha was a greater prophet than Elijah, then by extension, Jesus must be a far greater prophet than either Elisha or Elijah. So that's why they're saying what they're saying. Jesus is a great prophet. Something else worth highlighting is an insight from a very old book that was a Sunday school teacher's manual. Listen to this observation. I found it profound. It's interesting to note that throughout the scriptures, almost all recorded instances of raising from the dead were performed for women. Few people in the ancient world were more marginalized than women, especially sonless widows. In these stories throughout the Bible, the scripture writers go out of their way to show examples of God's favor bestowed on women who are at the margins of society. God is actively engaged in caring for the sick of this world, the suffering, the grieving, the disregarded. Practically all the greatest miracles of the Bible, those miracles that are resurrection miracles, were done for the benefit of marginalized women. Just let that sink in. Meditate on that this week. Ultimately, what I'm saying is this. Jesus is God's answer 
to the six-foot hole. See, I want you to see what Jesus is really doing here. In addition to loving this widow and raising her son from the dead, he's also unveiling the kingdom. What Jesus is showing us is he's bringing the kingdom and resurrection is a revelation of the kingdom. It's a foreshadowing. It's a glimpse of what God intends to do. You see, on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus will prove that he and he alone has authority over death. Remember what he said? I can lay down my life and I can pick it up again. Jesus is the life that's greater than death. And what Jesus does on Easter Sunday morning is prove once and for all that he is the author of life and he has greater power than the finality of death. You know, in Greek mythology, there's the character Hades. He's the the God of the underworld. He's the God of the dead. He's also considered in Greek mythology, the most hated of all the gods or all the immortals because he's the only God who never answers prayer. Never. No matter how much you beg and plead, when death takes your loved one, death refuses to return them to you. And that's the hardest thing about death to accept. It's a steel door that's slammed in our face. No matter how important or essential that deceased person was to your life, you're not getting them back. That's what makes death the great and final enemy. It's why the Bible says to us, the last enemy to be defeated is death. That's what Jesus overcame. Think of it like this. The miracles that fill the New Testament are a pledge. They're a down payment. They're a foretaste of the good things that are to come. What Christ does in this miracle, what Christ does in the gospel miracles is give us a sneak preview of coming attractions. Now, I don't know about you, but when we get to the movies, there's typically about, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes of previews of coming attractions. And my wife and I will be sitting there and we'll be watching those. And some of those attractions, you know, I'll just lean over to Brenda and I'll say, man, that looks really good. Let's remember the name of that movie because we want to see it when it comes out. Well, what the Bible is telling us is you and I ought to have that same experience as we're reading through the Gospels that we see what Jesus is doing and we realize this is the reality that's coming. This is what we get to look forward to. It's so amazing because the miracles are a glimpse of coming attractions. If you like the idea of a world without disease and death, if you think you might enjoy a society where everyone has enough to eat, no one's excluded, everyone has a place where they can flourish, well, guess what? That's what every miracle is promising. When I read this passage and others like it, I know the day is coming when Jesus will finally say to all of us, don't cry, I'm here. I've heard the cry of your heart. I'm gonna make it all okay. The comfort that he gave to this widow, there's there's a day coming When all the injustices, all the futility, all the hassles of life will be no more. When I I read this, I realize that the day is coming when what happened to me 48 years ago as a 10-year-old boy staring at my papa in that coffin trying to make sense of it all, all of that will be reversed. No longer will we have to ever go through that pain again. There's coming a time when no kid will have to have their parents explain why grandma and grandpa aren't coming back. No parent is ever going to have to stand over a two-foot-long grave. There's coming a time when no one's going to lose a husband, a son, and a future, and a hope. There's coming a time when cancer and coronavirus won't get the final word. War and disease and natural disasters will just be a thing of the past, and life will win because Jesus is resurrection life. 
Philip Yancey said that miracles like this one in Luke 7 show us what the world was meant to be. And they remind us that God is no more satisfied with this world than we are. And they offer us a hint of what God intends to do about it. One day, all things will be made new. We get a glimpse. We get a foretaste. It's the coming attractions. Look at this story. It's all about love and life and healing. It's about restoration and renewal. And those are the things that exist in the heart of God. But it's not just that one day all these things will happen in the distant future. It's also a foreshadowing. The other term for it is a prolepsis. You see, two sons met this day. One was dead, destined to live, and one was alive and he was destined to die. You see, Jesus wants us, each and every one, to connect the Jesus story to this widow's son because Jesus' body will soon be carried outside of Jerusalem for burial and his mother will experience a profound grief just like this widow. And almost all Bible scholars agree on the fact that Joseph had already died by the time Jesus was crucified because after the age of 12, we never hear him mentioned again and he's certainly not there at the end of Jesus' life. So Mary is a widow just like the widow in this story. Jesus has carried out the city toward the graveyard. A grieving widowed mother is sobbing that her son, God's only son, is dead. Not realizing that on the third day, the Holy Spirit would speak the words, arise, and he would live to never die again. Let me wrap up with this story. You know, there's a professional golfer from a few years back. His name was Paul Azinger. He was 33 years old, just won the PGA Championship, had 10 tournament trophies, victories under his belt. He was diagnosed with cancer, and at that time he wrote this, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me even harder. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. So Larry Moody, he's a pastor. He was teaching a Bible study on the tour, and he was aware of all this anxiety that Azinger was experiencing. So he said to him, Zinger, we're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying going to the land of the living. And that one comment changed Zinger's attitude toward his cancer. He went through chemotherapy. He recovered from his cancer. He returned to the PGA Tour. He did pretty well. But that bounce with cancer really changed him. And this is what he wrote in response. He said, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour, and I've won a lot of tournaments. But that happiness is always temporary. The only way you'll ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me, and I don't have problems, but I feel like I've found the answer to the six-foot hole. Now, there are two huge applications that come out of this message. One, Jesus wants us to identify with the dead son. Because literally, that's where we are. Before we know Jesus, before we have a relationship with God, we are all spiritually dead. And Jesus, he's been seeking you. He's been searching for you. He's been pursuing you. He's been loving you. He's been showing up in your life. And he wants nothing less than a relationship with you. That's what he wants. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And even when you didn't want him, even when you're telling him no way, even when you're going off and doing your own thing and openly defying him, God still pursued you because he loves you. And he wants to speak that life to you. You know, right now we're surrounded by so much uncertainty. 
How many people is this disease going to affect? How will we recover? When will life get back to normal? I can tell you the one certainty in the midst of all this uncertainty is that God loves you, wants a relationship with you. And if there's nothing else that happens during this time other than that you find him and he finds you, that will be worth it all. So you could pray with me as we wrap up this time together to receive Christ as your forgiver and leader. The other thing, and this is huge, is resurrection hope. There's coming a day when we're not going to call them miracles anymore. You know that? We're just going to call them everyday life because that's what this story is telling us. That God is going to set things right that are wrong with this world right now. Some of you have gone through some really awful stuff. Some of you have lost people very dear to you, and it, you have spiraled. You, you, you don't know what to do. You feel like you are so hopeless. And what you need to be reminded of is that God shares your feeling of compassion and love for your loved one, that there's coming a time when God will make all things new. Don't ever think of this life as the end-all, be-all. We're in the land of the dying, but we're going to the land of the living. That's your destiny. That's what God intends to do. He will make all things new. He will set all things right because life is going to interrupt death and life will prevail. So I wonder right now, as we're together in our homes, would you just bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for this message, for everything it teaches us, for the richness of this story and your seeking out of the people whose lives are wrecked, who feel utterly devastated. And God, you're doing that right now. They may not be with me in this room, but they are never absent from you. And God, you're there in their living rooms, wherever they happen to be, watching this message right now. You've been pursuing them. You've been loving them. There are so many people that just need a relationship with you. They need to open up their heart and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I know you love me. I know you pursue me. I know that I have a deadness in my life. Spiritually, I'm not alive to you, and I want to be alive to you. I want to know you in a personal relationship. So as best I know how, right now I give my life. I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want him to lead me. I want him to love me for the rest of my life. And I want to grow as a Christian, as a Christ follower. Show me the way and I'll go that way. I pray, God, that you would empower someone to make that decision right now. And Lord, for anybody who's hurting today, may they find hope in your promises. May we find hope that resurrection is a kingdom reality, that it demonstrates to us what you're doing in this world. That Lord, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is just a shadow of what it was meant to be. And every miracle is a down payment, is a, is a feature of coming attractions. And so as we lean into the gospel stories and we read these stories, may we be reminded that this stuff, these miracles that we think of as the grand exception are more true than the brutal reality that surrounds us right now. Jesus, I pray that you would love people in the midst of their brokenness and their devastation. Show them again and again why your name is called faithful. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. God bless you all. I hope it's a very blessed week for you. Hey guys, thank you for joining us for our online service today. Uh, we're glad that you could be here. Uh, we wondering if you are blessed by this message today, would you consider uh, making a gift? You can visit our website and go to the Give tab to see ways to give, or you can just text GIVE to 96995. 
and uh, continue to support our ministry during this time. Uh, we're gonna continue to bring you online material and we're gonna be continuing to serve our church. We have kind of reorganized our staff to be able to do ministry in a new and kind of exciting way uh, during this season. And so we hope that you continue to support us as uh, we bring Jesus to this world uh, that desperately needs him. Thank you for joining us today.